Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Sharing the Hope from the Micah Mason Foundation. My name is Patrick Mason, a board member from the Micah Mason Foundation. We are joined today by Dr. Titus Chan. Dr. Chan earned his MD at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. He completed his pediatric residency, pediatric critical care medicine fellowship, and pediatric cardiology fellowship at Primary Children's Hospital and the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. Titus worked as a pediatric intensive care registrar at Birmingham Children's Hospital in Birmingham, UK, before moving to Seattle to join Seattle Children's Critical Care Medical Division and the Heart Center. Dr. Chan enjoys caring for children of all ages with all types of congenital and acquired heart diseases in both the cardiac intensive care unit and Seattle Children's Heart Center outpatient clinic. He has specific research interests in health policy, health economics, and the socioeconomic effects of critical illness and cardiac care. So welcome, Dr. Chan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Did I get it all? Did I get all the things correct? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much me. Okay. It's interesting seeing Birmingham, uh, UK, because I'm used to seeing Birmingham, Alabama. (laughs) Yeah, they pronounce it Birmingham in the United Kingdom. So at least I know which one they're talking about when I hear Birmingham versus Birmingham. All right. Okay, so Dr. Chan, first question I always ask is, why did you become interested in the HLHS problem? I must have become interested in caring for children with HLHS, plus all of our other patients who have single ventricle heart disease. When I was a critical care fellow in Salt Lake City, I think generally, as I think about kind of the patients that I, I'm really interested in taking care of, it's those patients that are kind of our most fragile and at-risk patient populations. And certainly, when you work in the cardiac ICU, our HLHS patients, all of our single ventricle patients, are particularly complex and require special attention. Many of those patients spend a lot of time in the ICU, so you spend a lot of time with those family members. So it was kind of this combination of taking care of interesting, complex patients, but then also growing this connection to the family members that we see all the time because they're in our ICU. And then I think that that kind of carried onward through my cardiology fellowship where I saw these patients in a different light in the sense that like, you know, you see them in the ICU where they're very, very sick. But then the other part of it is that you see them in your clinic where they're growing, developing babies. And they navigate life with a heart disease as they go from kind of, you know, these babies with single ventricle heart disease, who you're really careful about in the interstage period, to infants and toddlers and school-aged children. And then the most rewarding part is that when you see them and they're teenagers and they're doing all these teenager things, and then when they get even older and they start doing these young adult things, and that I think is probably one of the most rewarding parts of work is just is seeing them grow to be adolescents and young adults. I think that's the story of my life of just falling backwards into into something. But I think that just, you know, spending time taking care of these patients and their families over time has made me more and more interested in caring for these patients. So you're involved with NPCQIC or the National Pediatric Cardiology Quality Improvement Collaborative. What is NPCQIC to you? Oh, that's a great question. To me, the NPCQIC is really, in some degrees, a social network of all the people who are interested in caring for children with single ventricle heart disease. I'm somewhat facetious when I say a, a social network because it's more than that. It's it's a quality improvement collaborative where we, obviously we collect data 
to understand what's happening with all of our patients across the country. We think about, you know, research questions of like, what happens to our patients, you know, in that first year of life. And then we think about quality improvement projects, which really kind of pertains to like, we found this in our research. Now, how do we make things better and make things better for everybody? It's a little bit different in the sense that oftentimes in a lot of medical industry, you can meet with your colleagues and talk about research and quality improvement projects. But this is different in the sense that we have such a tight connection to our patients that they are a significant part of the collaborative. So when we think about research, when we think about quality improvement, that's done with physicians or providers, I shouldn't just say physicians, so physicians, healthcare providers, as well as parents of children with HLHS and other single ventricle heart disease. And that's a little bit different from a lot of other research collaboratives and databases in the, in the health sciences in the sense that it was probably one of the first few ones in pediatrics where we were thinking about how do we improve care with direct input from family members. And I find it great because it is, to, at least to my mind, it gives us kind of a 360 degree view of how to deliver care. We can't just think about the heart, uh, which as cardiologists, we only just, we, you know, that's the first thing we think about. But then at the same time, when we think about taking care of our patients, we think about all of the other organ systems that are involved, you know, gross motor, feeding, and then as they get older, their liver. And so it makes us think about kind of all of the other organ systems. And then it also makes us think about beyond that. As we're caring for our patients, we have to, we think about their parents and the family dynamics, and then long-term about how do we get them to have progressive neurodevelopment. This is outside of the NPC, but it's certainly addressed by the fund, but is how do we get them to be healthy adults? That means not only having a healthy heart and a healthy liver, but also a healthy adjustment to society. How did you first encounter NPC QIC and what, what made you want to get involved? Like I said before, you know, the story of my life is kind of falling backwards into things. And so at Seattle Children's, I've been part of the, the single ventricle team here. And there was a group of us cardiologists. And one of the other cardiologists was actually the lead for the NPC QIC, but was actually moving away. And so as they were moving away, they handed it off to me. And I and I had to confess that I didn't really know much about it at all when I took it over. And so I initially started off as just the site lead. And so my job was to make sure it was approved by our research institutional review board and then making sure that we were collecting data. And then it wasn't until I actually started attending the meetings that I started to understand about the research they were doing, their integration with Sisters by Heart, and how they involve parents in essentially everything that they do. And then subsequently, because I have a master's degree in clinical investigation and public policy, I got recruited to help them with their data for the surgical ICU learning lab. So I was brought on as the data person for the surgical ICU learning lab, since my, my main job is, is actually one of the cardiac ICU docs here at Seattle Children's. And so I was helping with that. And then as I was working with the surgical ICU learning lab, they asked me to help with the data for the feeding learning lab, the nutrition and growth feeding learning lab. So I helped with that. And then after that, they asked me to apply to be the, the phase two leader, which is essentially the physician who helps with all of the ongoing QI projects that are ongoing here. So the story of my life is I fall backwards into, into, into whatever I'm doing and just kind of by happenstance, if my other colleague hadn't moved away and if I hadn't gone to a meeting and if I hadn't known other people who, who knew about my background in, in data analytics, I don't know if I would have ended up here, but 
everything is like, you know, a happy accident where you, you fall into one thing or another and then that's how you get there, I guess. Right place, the right time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You talked a little bit about being one of the phase two leaders. What QI projects are you working on or that you're involved with? I can talk about a few of the projects. So some of our projects have culminated, I guess, in the sense that we've produced toolkits. The ones that I would point your attention to would be the tube winning toolkit. When we looked at our, at our data a few years ago, we found that about two thirds of children still have a feeding tube at the time of their stage two, at the time of their gland, um, usually. And then about a third of patients are still need a feeding tube kind of when they're at their first birthday. And you may recall that one of our previous kind of goals was that every baby, we wanted every baby to be eating cake by mouth on their first birthday. Yep. Great goal. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> and I mean, obviously, the underlying goal is to mean that they don't need a feeding tube at their first birthday, as opposed to just cake, cake in and of itself. But there was a group of people in the in the growth and nutrition learning lab who were really interested in figuring out a way to get to that goal. There was a variety of different ways that we were looking at addressing this goal. And one of them was hunger-based tube weaning. And a few people had tried it out. And it just, again, by happenstance, one of the people who had been really experienced with this is, is actually our feeding specialist here at Seattle Children's and one of our dietitian. And so they were a part of a group that we're really advocating for a hunger-based tube weaning where you the thought is is that you you slowly cut back on what you're giving by tube and then you're helping the baby kind of make that connection that hey my stomach is hungry and if i eat something by mouth that hunger feeling goes away i'm sure that that the feeding specialists have have just said that that's like the worst explanation ever of what hunger <laughs> is. but it's an, it's an understandable explanation that's the way that my my cardiology brain thinks about it. And so we started working on pooling our experience. So here at Seattle Children's, MUSC in South Carolina, and Lurie Children's in Chicago all started kind of doing this simultaneously. And I should also mention Cincinnati Children's, um, we're all kind of doing that simultaneously. And then on top of that, there was many other centers who were also very interested in doing this as well, too. And so physicians, dietitians, feeding specialists, and parents all got together and figured out like, these are the things that we need to have a successful tube weaning team or program. And so they put all of those on paper and then they translated all of them into these beautiful YouTube series where centers and parents can go to learn kind of like, these are the steps that are needed to do a successful tube weaning. So, so that was a QI project. That toolkit was published at our last learning session back in, I guess it was probably April of this year. And then the other part of it is that we were also thinking about, can we increase feeding before the stage one, the Norwood or the hybrid? And there's data that shows that, you know, babies who are fed preoperatively have better bonding with, with their parents. They oftentimes do better in terms of getting to full feeds after their stage one. We're still trying to figure out how that relationship is. It, it could be that the babies who are well enough to feed are the ones who do better after their stage one. So we still have to kind of figure out exactly how that relationship works. We do think that it probably improves long-term feeds too, in the sense that like, if you are being fed before your stage one, you're starting to learn the neural pathways to get you into like, okay, eating is how I do, this is how I eat. And so hopefully it gets, you pick it up faster after your stage one, when you're extubated. We still have to prove that it's still a suspicion, but without solid evidence as of yet, but we still have to prove that. But our suspicion is that that's the case, is that the sooner you start eating, the more likely you are to be a better eater down the road. One of the other toolkits that 
we also just published just now at our recent learning session in November was the preoperative feeding toolkit. So kind of all the tools that you need to start feeding before your stage one at your center. So those are the two ones that are really kind of feeding related. And then the other one that we're working on is the unplanned reintervention project. When we were working with the surgical ICU learning lab, one of the things that we said, okay, let's look at all the things that can happen to a patient during their stage one hospitalization that we can theoretically influence and figure out what are the things that have the biggest impact on patients being discharged home after their stage one. So with the thinking then that like, if we can identify the biggest influencers, then theoretically we should try to address those biggest influencers. And maybe if we can do that, then we can get more children home after their stage one. There's a few things that we found, but one of them was unplanned reinterventions. And that means needing surgery or a cardiac catheterization after your stage one or your Norwood. What we found was that if you didn't need an unplanned operation or an unplanned cath after your stage one, you had a much greater chance of going home after your Norwood than if you did. This project is aimed at trying to reduce the need for an unplanned reintervention after your stage one. But then at the same time, realizing there are some patients who the right thing to do is to do an operation or to do a cath. And so decreasing the risk of mortality that might be associated with that unplanned reintervention that is needed. So in other words, making it safe. And we think the way to do this is by, there is a group of patients that will definitely need a reoperation, or it's clear that that's the right thing to do. And so identifying those patients sooner rather than later and making sure that it's safe for them and however possible to get them through that unplanned reintervention. And our goal there is that by either decreasing the need for it or making it safer would be the way to help us get more kids home um, after their stage one. Those are three. I have one more. <laughs> and so the unplanned reintervention is kind of in our what we call the learning cohort. And so it hasn't gone been brought into the entire collaborative. It's just in about 11 centers right now. And then the last one is hopefully going to go live kind of sometime in 2023. And that would be our health equity project where our fetal learning lab or our prenatal learning lab showed that patients that if you were black or African-American or Hispanic, you were less likely to get coordinated care uh, for your delivery than if you were white. And then at the same time, if you were on government insurance, so Medicaid, CHIP, or, or some state equivalent, you were less likely to receive prenatal support before your delivery. And so they're starting in the kind of the prenatal world in the sense of improving prenatal or coordinated delivery and improving prenatal support as their first kind of outcome that they're trying to influence. And then with the goal then that we will look at kind of subsequent phases of single ventricle life in the first year to improve. Those are the four QI projects that are completed, are in progress, and then subsequently are being planned that I'm, I'm directly involved with. And then there are other things too. We also have our surgical coaching project, our roadmap project for emotional health, and gross motor. Gross motor is, the, is our toolkit that was published, that was also published this year at our last learning session. The toolkits are all on the NPCQIC website. You don't have to log in. They're available to anybody who visits the website. And then health equity, unplanned interventions, and surgical coaching are obviously for within the, the NPCQIC collaborative as we're still kind of in the, in the learning phase in that regard. Is there any particular project you're most excited about or you're, you're most interested in? As the leader for the unplanned intervention project, I feel, I feel like I have to say that that's it, but I would also <laughs> say, you know, I'm passionate about all of them because they all address different parts of life. 
So it's kind of hard to say that one's my favorite, but I would say that all of them address different aspects of life as our patients kind of go through their single ventricle path journey. I feel like they're all so very interesting and very important to our patients and their families that it's hard to really know if there's one particular. But since I am the lead for the unplanned interventions, I guess I have to say that that's my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Okay, so that's a lot of kind of the short-term, one to two-year kind of, or maybe three, four, depending on on how difficult the data gets. What do you think about long-term? What do you hope to accomplish long-term with NBCQIC? You've probably heard that there's now the NPCQIC, which really kind of covers life from kind of diagnosis to first year of life, your first birthday, I guess. And then there's the Fontan project, which is essentially from when you become a Fontan onwards. I think we are moving towards a point in time in the future. It's not entirely clear when, but ideally there will be a registry and a collaborative that's going to span essentially from fetal diagnosis all the way to adult infinity, essentially. I tell most of my families when I talk to them that like our overall goal is to get every patient to be a healthy, adjusted, and joyful, functioning young adult somehow. And figuring out how we can do that is the work that we're interested in. And I think that as NPC and and the FON project come together, our goal would be that we have essentially a collaborative that will span the entirety of our patients' lives and will have the tools to not only improve care around the Norwood and improve feeding in at your first birthday, but also thinking about how do we get you as well-prepared for elementary school? And then how do we help you navigate through the teenage years, which I think is like, it's hard for anybody to get through the teenage years. And then how do we get you prepared to be an adult and to be an adult who has a medical diagnosis. There's so much work that still needs to be done in terms of like just understanding what's the best way to get through. I mean, it's hard enough for us to think about how do we still improve what's going on in the first year of life, but then also to think about like, how do we make things better for the first 18 years? And then how do you, I mean, as a pediatrician, I don't even know what to do about how do you improve care and how do you improve outcomes for 20 year olds and 30 year olds and 50 year olds? I guess, you know, the long term is to figure out, you know, as a pediatrician, when they become adults, I'm going to leave that to somebody who has much more expertise than I I do. But as a pediatrician, I think that our is to figure out, like, how do we get our patients from birth to young adulthood and make sure that they're healthy and happy and well-adjusted young adults? I realize that that's pretty vague because, <laughs> but to be honest, that that's, I don't know if I can give you like a definite, like, this is, this is the one thing that we need to do to make things better because I think that there's so many things. I think in a sense, like, how do we improve Fontan circulation for the long term? How do we make sure that everybody's liver is healthy? How do we make sure that we know that there's a higher, higher rates of anxiety and sometimes depression in children with heart disease? I mean, my daughter does not have heart disease, but I worry about like, how do I even get my daughter through her teenage years so that she's a healthy, adjusted adult? And so how do we make sure that that we can do that for all of our patients? So I don't have a definite, like, this is the one thing that we need to do because there's so many, there are so many things that we can work on to get there that I think that oftentimes we just need to think about like our overarching goal for our patients. It's just always the same. It's get them to be happy, well-adjusted adults. Well, I like that. It's a good goal. <laughs> it's a good, it is vague, but it, you know, ultimately that's a hope, right? And it's not a plan or an action 
said or or it's the goal, right? It'll change over time. Yeah. Because like everything that we do when the Norwood has has been a relatively stable operation in the sense that that hasn't changed too much, although it has changed in the sense that they moved from the BTT shunt to the Sano. But people are trying new things where they, they do the hybrid you know, as your first operation and then a comprehensive stage two as your second operation. And there are some groups that are doing a stage one that's almost entirely done in the cath lab without surgery for their first one and then a bigger operation when you're older. Everything that happens kind of like when you're a baby will obviously influence what's going to happen when you're a teenager. And so it will be a shifting goal and the the goal itself will, will be the same, but the mechanics and the details will shift over time. And we just need to figure out what's the best one over time. So shifting gears a little bit from NPCQ, I see and more to uh, you. What do you hope to accomplish in the world of CHD and, and with the HLHS in general? That's a good question. Myself, I feel like the, the things that I'm really interested in are improving the quality of life for our single ventricle babies in that first year of life, since that's when I see them the most. But then also thinking about how do we improve the care after that first year of life too, when you know, you've had your Glen or your stage two and you're getting a little bit older and you're getting ready for elementary school or kindergarten, I guess. And how do we make sure that they have all the resources that they need to be young, happy elementary school children? So that's making sure that they have a stable feeding regimen, that they have a well-supported cardiac system so that they can play with their friends and then making sure that they've had enough neurodevelopmental services so that they're well-adjusted and they're ready to go to school. And that's an area that we really focus in a lot and we think about different ways. And so, you know, we've spent a lot of time thinking about hunger-based tube weaning. We're doing some great work with our ear, nose, and throat surgeons in terms of kids who have vocal cord paresis. Like, can we make that better so that they can eat better by mouth? And then we're doing some work in terms of like getting them to see our cardiac neurodevelopmental specialist earlier rather than later and making sure that this is like a long-term relationship that they're setting up so that our cardiac neurodevelopmentalists can help with gross motor work when they're babies, help with school age adjustment, and then help with the teenage years. The drama of middle school and teenage years. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, the other area that we do, that I, I do a lot of work in is trying to address disparities. We showed that certain race and ethnicities have different outcomes and trying to narrow that gap by making sure that the care that we deliver in the hospital and in the clinic is the same. And not even that, not even that it's the same, but then making sure that, that when there are groups of people who are at higher risk, they, they get more care. If they need more care, that they get that too, so that they have the same outcome as opposed to the same care. Yeah, I remember when, I guess it was 2020, 2021, that a lot of the disparity stuff came into sharp focus. And it was semi-unsurprising, but also appalling to me because it shouldn't matter. Like a kid comes in with this condition, it doesn't matter where they're from, you know, or who they are, they should be treated equally. I can understand in some respects, outcomes maybe not being the same, but that's going to be a fallout from the treatment. And uh, if the treatment's not the same, then you can't, you can't even have equal outcomes. So yeah, that's, it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. And I think it gets deeper in the sense that to some degree, if there are groups that are not getting the same outcome, then those are groups that should get potentially more treatment if they need it. So not even thinking that like we're doing the same for everybody, but 
maybe there's a group of patients that need more care and need right. more attention to make sure that they get there. So, and so, yeah, we're, we're spending a lot of time thinking about like, how can we, we start to shift from, you know, how do we make sure that everybody gets the same care to making sure that, how do we make sure that everybody gets the same outcome? Right. How does everybody get not the same care, but the care that they need for the problems they have? Exactly. Yeah. So you are in Seattle right now, correct? Mm-hmm. All right. So two last questions. So one's a curveball. So this question is coming out of my experience within the, the HLHS community and, and whatnot. We get a lot of folks who, a lot of parents who are in some state of despair is maybe a, a way to put it, or some state of disquiet after diagnosis, after talking with a cardiologist who maybe is not as informed as we would all like all doctors to be all the time, <laughs> even though they're people, right? They have to sleep. <laughs> and so we get a lot of times a question posed, is there a future for my kid? Is there a possibility? And so if you were to encounter a parent like that, what would you have to say to them? When I worked only in the ICU, there, I could see that there was a lot of not only families, but also providers who would have that same question, is there hope? And I would say that certainly, you know, at the time of diagnosis and certainly during the stage one Norwood hospitalization, I think so many families experience that because you're in the ICU for a long time, and especially in the wintertime when it's dark out all the time, you can certainly experience a lot of feelings of hopelessness when that occurs. And I can say that, and not to discount those feelings, but there is most definitely hope out there in the sense that we see so many children who are so sick in the ICU, but then two months later, three months later, there are these happy babies who are at home and they're with their family. They're further removed from the ICU and they are living a pretty normal life at that point in time. It's not going to be necessarily the same as what their siblings might have experienced, but they're living a happy life outside of the hospital. And so I would say that to all of the families that, that I encountered, we can get there. It may take us some time to get there, but we will get there however we need to. And I will also say then, like, even when we think about that, I oftentimes think about one patient that I had when I was a, a cardiology fellow. I think she was in her mid-20s. And she had had three surgeries and was a Fontan. And, you know, she was this beautiful young woman who had gone to college, was getting married and was a Fontan and was thinking about having kids. And it was seeing her and other young adults like her makes me tell people that, you know, we can get you there, but it will take time and it will take a lot of effort, but we can get there. So certainly if you are losing hope at the time of diagnosis or kind of when you're in the hospital, just realize that we can myself personally, but I am sure that all of your care providers are doing everything they can to kind of get that endpoint of a young adult who's almost ready to go out into the world. So I do think that it is very, very normal to experience stress and hopelessness when you know you're in the thick of your stage one hospitalization, but realize that even a few months from now, you'll be in a different spot. And then years from now and many, many years from now, it'll be a very different a different thing too. Thank you for the answer. It was, it was beautiful. The other question I like to ask is, uh, so you're in Seattle. So if I find myself in Seattle, where do I need to go eat? Oh, it kind of depends on what you want. 
one of the places that I really love. So first of all, we have really good fish and chips and the Pacific Inn pub on Stoneway, I think has some of the best cholesterol laden uh, fish and chips, <laughs> fish and chips with a beer. Uh, and I believe Anthony Bourdain once ate there as well, too. So I feel like that's that's a solid recommendation. Yeah, yeah that's good. There are certainly others. Bizarro is the, like, the zaniest like, pasta place in Wallingford. And I mean, obviously, we have Starbucks for coffee, but I would say that there are there are probably a hundred other places that are are small little coffee shops. Cafe Ladro is like you know the local the local place, but ETG Coffee is one of my favorites. Good, 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 very good. Well, Doctor Chan or Titus, as as you you keep telling me, call you Titus, and I keep failing to do it. <laughs> we do really appreciate you uh, agreeing to do this interview and coming on and. Um, you very much again for uh, participating and for uh, helping us share the hope. Great. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, dear listener, for joining us again for this episode of Sharing the Hope. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Dr. Titus Chan and our discussion of his work with NPCQIC. You can find NPCQIC on the web at npcqic.org. And if you'd like to find out how to help the organization, click on the Learn More button. If you'd like to support the podcast or the Micah Mason Foundation in general, go to micahmasonfoundation.org and click on the Donate button. I'm your host, Patrick Mason, and thank you again for joining us. Music